This is the Bama Podcast with Marty Solomon. I'm his co-host, Brent Billings. Today we look at Jesus' famous prayer for unity. Why was this his foremost concern before going to the cross? Yes, indeed. This is one of those... Uh, um, do I call it one of my favorite passages? I don't know. I do find this passage, this prayer, uh, the whole idea concept just captivates me. Like this is the night that Jesus is arrested the night that he's on his way, I mean, he's on his way to the cross. He's just had a Passover Seder. Um, and, and he's just talked, he, he's just spent all this time having all kinds of conversation at the Passover Seder, let alone all the conversation we've been looking at for the last few chapters of John. And But in other gospels, we're told that they spend that Passover Seder arguing about who is the greatest, like their standard, that kind of, that very human, and I try not to put that Whenever I run into that phrase, I have tried throughout our podcast to say, like, yes, we can relate to this. This is what we do. This is what we do on Facebook. This is what we do on social media. This is what we do at parties and social gatherings. We try to figure out whose worldview is the greatest, whose identity is we, we I'm I'm greater. I'm greater. My my way of seeing the world is greater. This is a very normal human experience, but it it had happened that evening at dinner. And and I understand that Jesus does plenty of praying after this. Like, I don't want to imply anything. But in a lot of ways, from a literary sense, this is the last prayer that Jesus prays, as some of the Gospels would present it. This is this is like his last, like, prayer prayer. Like, not praying on the cross prayer. Like, I get it, but this is his last prayer that's recorded, last monologue, last discourse that we have recorded. And, and I don't know how this worked. Like, did John hear this? We're told that Peter and James and John were there, but they were sleeping and they were a ways away. Did Jesus tell him about this prayer later? Like, did God miraculously tell John about this prayer? Like, how did John, did John, is this more of an artistic move on John's part? Where does this prayer come from? I, I don't I don't have a good answer for that, but I am captivated by the substance of this prayer. That on the last night that Jesus is engaged in his ministry on the way to the cross. It's one of the last recorded intentional discourses, prayers that he has. What is on his mind? He goes away just to pray to God, him and God, last moments. And of all the things he prays for, he's going to pray for unity of his followers, his disciples first, and then those that would come after them second. I find that whole thing to be like in some regard, this is Jesus's, you could say God's, because Jesus says, I, I've, I've done only what you've told me to do. I've done only what you've given me to do. So this is God's strategy. Whatever God is building in the kingdom, like this is the thing that, this is one of the foundational things that God is trying to create, weave together, is a sense of a, a something about the way that this group fellowships together that is the testimony to who God is and what the kingdom looks like in the world. This is a big deal. And not just the theological, oh, God wants us to be one, and I can't believe we have all these denominations. No, no, no. Bigger than that. Bigger than that. Like, who cares if one group likes to do high church and one group likes to do smoke machines and and distorted guitars. Who cares if somebody wants to speak in tongues and this group like yes, all of that diversity I I I I I see all of it as wonderful and beautiful. I'm talking about something much deeper than all of that. 
Like, I'm not talking about a shallow treatment of like, oh, we need to all be one church. I mean, yes, but no. What Jesus is referencing here, I think, is so much bigger, deeper, wider than that. So I don't know if you have any commentary to add to that, Brent, before you start reading. The choice is yours. Well, just to set the context, uh, remember Jesus was um, addressing his disciples' uh, grief at his departure, and, you know, he's just saying, you know, blah, 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 take heart, I have overcome the world. And then we begin our passage today. After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son, that your son may glorify you. Okay, hold on. I can't even let you get into the prayer. You just did context, Brent, and just like totally blew my mind. Because in my in my mind's eye, whenever I have seen this prayer, I have, and I don't know why. How come how come Brent Billings can make me all of a sudden out of nowhere question something I've never thought of in 20 years? <laughs> so I have always in my in my head pictured this prayer happening while the disciples are sleeping. And he goes off to pray. Yeah, I. But I'm now realizing that in John, I heard you say that, and I com- was completely on board with everything. Like that was exactly the same picture I had, and I don't even know why I decided to throw that context in there. I just thought, like, oh, after Jesus said this, it's like, okay, well, after he said what, and I just wanted to like, I didn't even know what I was saying. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, when I when I uh, when you read that, I realized when I think back to like even how the synoptics would do this. They have Jesus going away. They talk about him going away, the disciples staying, and he actually prays a different prayer. There's a different prayer that he prays and engages in. And I've just I've just always assumed that he prayed this one too at the same time. But now that I'm reading it in John, it almost is like he's still standing there with them, which would explain why John knows the prayer. He was standing right there because I, I don't get the impression he goes anywhere. He just got done saying, take heart, I have overcome the world. After Jesus had said this, he looked up. There's no going away. Golly, golly, Brent. <laughs> Just killing me here with all my textual assumptions. Uh, well, what can I say? <laughs> boy, how, how, boy, wow. You just like shattered my paradigm all of a sudden. Because if he's still standing with his disciples, think about how they hear that. Oh, goodness. If that's a prayer that they are listening in on and overhear. In the midst of all this talk about suffering and persevering and following him to the cross, and in the midst of the fact that they had argued about who was the greatest at the Seder meal earlier that evening, oh man, wowzers. What a what a different context that is. All right, well I'm my notes are shattered for the episode. Let's <laughs> go ahead and get into whatever we're gonna talk about here. This is gonna be fun. And and we will have some questions about this audience, I think, coming up. Um but yeah, so let's let's continue reading. Uh, Father, the hour has come. Uh, we, we've talked about this before. He's already said that the hour has come, but he's just restating it. The hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. All right, so here we have it. The book of, what do we call it, Brent? The book of? Book of glory now. The book of glory. Book of glory. So we had the book of signs, 
And the hour has ha, hadn't come. The hour hadn't come. And then all of a sudden we had this shift. The hour had come. And now we are in this book of glory. And that seems like a pretty heavy theme as Jesus opens his prayer here. I think this, what do we want to call this? The glorification process is connected to this conversation of suffering. It's going to fit what we see in Philippians chapter 2. It's going to fit what we see in, in Hebrews chapter 2. All this conversation about God is bringing things to glory through the process of suffering. I'm not saying he's causing the suffering or whatever, but he is not letting anything be wasted. So whatever suffering, whatever persecution, whatever trouble, whatever pain lies ahead, God is redeeming all of that. He's not wasting any of it, and he's using it to bring things to glory. So here's Jesus telling people you have trust. In fact, the very last thing that you just told us, he said, take heart, I have overcome the world. All of this is a part of this work that God's given him to do. And in that, that God would be glorified and that Jesus would be glorified, this is how God is bringing all of creation. Hebrews will say many sons and daughters to glory. There is a connection between these two ideas. But 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 Jesus says, may your work, may your mission, may your goal, may your objective be accomplished. Let's do this would be my paraphrase. And I would be curious to know more about the Greek behind verse four, but it seems to be that the work is already finished because it says, I have brought past tense, you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. But I just wonder if it's more complicated than that. Well, I don't, yeah, I don't think so because I've looked at that before, even in reference to John 13, because he says in John 13, as he goes to wash their feet, I, I've finished the work that God's given me to do. And that, you know, I've looked at that before, and that tense really is, in fact, I love to use that when we think, like a lot of us think that the work that Jesus came to do was to die on the cross and to raise, you know, rise again, which is absolutely true. I'm not taking away from that. I'm not saying it's not, but there's also a very, very significant part of the work that was long before the cross. It's everything up to that evening, like his ministry, the life he lived, the teachings, the parables, the the fulfillment, the rabbinical all of the stuff we've studied all throughout all of the Gospels, and all of that was was not just Jesus like hanging out and killing time until the cross. It was Jesus, the it was in large part the work that God sent him to do. So I, I, I love the observation. I think it comes back up here again. There is work that has been completed. There's more ahead of him, but there he has finished the work that God sent him to do. And I, I like that. By the way, my my voice is still a little weird. I feel like this this has been like the worst allergy season ever. I've heard that from from many people. I went out to my truck the other day, just covered in pollen, and I thought of Brent Billings. I almost wrote your name in the window. I was like, oh, Brent. And I don't even know. Like, I get on I get on the little pollen apps, and it's like very low. It's like, well, then what in the world is happening? <laughs> But the, the drugs do seem to be working a little bit today in that I don't feel super congested, but I feel like my voice is still just a little bit off. So if you're wondering... Our listeners, uh, they're, they're so gracious. They're so gracious. So forgiving. They're wonderful. My respiratory system is just a total disaster. Um, anyway, <laughs> back to the text, I suppose. I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me and they have obeyed your word. And this is kind of what I was talking about here. So the, we have these, we have these pronouns 
And is it referring specifically to the 11 disciples remaining at this point? I don't know if Judas really counts at this point. I think he's kind of, uh, at least John, as he's writing it, has written Judas off. But is Jesus praying specifically for those guys, or is he praying for his larger group of disciples? Yeah, what does the NET have to say? Both, both the NET and the NIV in their subtitles say, praise for the disciples. But then in the text, uh, the NIV translates it, they, whereas the NIV, uh, the NET translates it, the men. And in the footnote, it says, we think he's specifically referring to the 11, but if he is referring to the larger, then you would translate it differently. Yeah, and I yeah, I don't know if there's... Uh, I, I love that question, too. Uh, I haven't necessarily... There's a distinction that's going to be made later in the prayer between who he's praying for now and all, all those that will come after. But I think it's a great question of, is this specifically the 12, the 11? Is it the 11 and the... Like, is it just that core group, maybe even and the ladies? Or is it like a, a larger group? Like, we might have think of like the 70... Like, even at the Great Commission, there's a larger group than just the 12 that are there at the Great Commission. So... Is it more not, not that they're standing there at that moment, but may, maybe uh, is there? I would assume it's a little bit more loose in its definition of who he's praying for than just the eleven, because I think there's even parts of the, um, like we even have indication in, in other gospels. It's not just the eleven that are with him. There are even some outliers that are there, uh, John, Mark, and a few other folks that are there with them. So. And I would assume when he says they, I think he's thinking of all these people that have said yes to this movement, that are with him, that are following him, that are a part of this thing that Jesus is doing. Uh, I love that question. I've never really asked it a lot. I, I've just always in my head just thought of the 12. But yeah, it's probably bigger. It's probably a little bit more fluid than that. Well, and like in our diagram that we used a few episodes ago with the table, we're assuming that it's just the 13 of them at the table for the the Passover Seder. meal, yep, yep. But I, but I wonder if it was actually more than that. If it was a slightly could bigger table, or or just yeah. a, you know, another table in the room, or could have been, or maybe it was just them. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, could have. That's it's a great question. Don't give me any more things to mess up my paradigm, Brent. You've done that enough today. Thank you, Brent. <laughs> well, I'm going to blame John here because there's a lot of, uh, I think in this episode and the next one, uh, there's just so much ambiguous language as to who is actually at play here. And sometimes, sure. sometimes John gives us more detail than we see in other accounts. And then sometimes uh, not as much as we right. would maybe like. So. Yep. Uh, let's see. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. For I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, but those you have given me, for they are yours. Okay. So I love, so I'm just looking at, I'm looking for themes here. One of them is the sense of stewardship that you see in Jesus's prayer. Again, he's looking to the Father in this, what Philippians says, he chose to take on the form of a servant being born like somebody in human image. He's he's working in this, um, this human capacity, praying to God, saying, this is your plan. These are your people. You've given them to me. I'm, I've tried to steward them well. And I also love in those verses, like how generous, like I, I really want to... I don't think I'm stretching here. I, I, to me, as I look at those verses, 
I think to myself, that is such a compassionate, generous, merciful, gracious way of framing. (laughs) I mean, just think of all the ways they haven't gotten it. They haven't understood. They argued about who was the greatest at dinner. Like, think of all the knucklehead moments that they just screw it up and blow it. And Jesus' presentation in his prayer for this group of people is they get it. They have not strayed from your word. Um, I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. And you're like, man, do you remember just like six chapters ago? This was a we were struggling to accept, but Jesus has this gracious, generous, merciful, compassionate way, and I, I'd love to think that that's exactly how Jesus sees them. He's he's not like. He sees us that way. And and I would argue that if that's how he sees us, that's the accurate way to see us. In light of all the ways that we struggle and we fail and we don't see it all perfectly, Jesus doesn't look at it and be like, <laughs> like his prayer to God is not, you know, there's a lot of potential. <laughs> his prayer to God is, is they get it. They get it. They get it, God. They get it. And they've accepted it. Well, and it's not like, like God didn't set aside, the Father didn't set aside his... Uh, any of his divine abilities right. to come and be a human on the earth like Jesus has. Yep. It's not like it's not like Jesus is saying this stuff and God's like, oh, is that how it is? Okay, well, I guess I'll just take your word for it. Like he knows exactly all the stuff that's going on. And I kind of right. feel like it's maybe, uh, I mean, it's not exactly the same, but I kind of think of Abraham negotiating for Sodom. Sure, Like sure. God knows exactly how many people there are. Yep. And yet God is just going to sit there and wait for Abraham to go through the numbers and say like, how, how far is my guy willing to push this? Yep. And all whatever he's willing to do, like I'll go for it. Yep. But I'm going to wait and see what he wants to do. And so I wonder if it's kind of like that where God is just listening and saying, okay, like, how do you feel about these guys? How do you, how do you want to present them? Are you going to uh, look at them with Ayin Tova or are you going to look at them with Ayin Ra? Ooh, the ultimate Ayin Tova. I love that. Jesus definitely has it. A flawless Ayin Tova. Ooh, I like that. Mm, that'll preach. <laughs> okay. Um, let's see. I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine. And glory has come to me through them. Uh, talk about that uh, that idea of the disciples going on to do greater things than than Jesus and and that's the mark of a good rabbi. Yeah, and talking about Greek tense, glory has come to me through them. Oh, sure, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Really? I mean, that's more generous. That's some more Ayin Tova there. Okay, Jesus. I, and, and again, is Jesus just like rolling his eyes? and Or, or does, is this really how Jesus accurately, Son of God, Jesus Christ perspective, this is how he sees it? Like even in the midst of all this craziness and unbelievable three years of just at times, knuckleheaded failure. Nope, they've brought glory to me. Wow. Okay. Okay. Okay, I'm in. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. Okay, so Jesus says, he, he does all this. He, he prays that he might be true to the true, true to the objective, true to the mission, true to the process, uh, I want. I, I've I've finished the work. I've glorified your name. May I be glorified. May you be glorified. God, I pray for these these people that have said yes to you. They know your word. They follow you. They brought glory to me, and I'm now leaving. 
So God, I'm asking for you to protect them. The power of your name, would you protect them? And the and the prayer that is linked to his prayer for protection is a prayer. This is where he's going to start praying for unity. Like he says, God, I want you to, I'm leaving. They're staying. So would you protect them in the power of your name that they would have a sense of unity together, that they would be one as you and I are one. Go ahead. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by that name you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction so that scripture would be fulfilled. I have gotten a bunch of questions about, uh, you know, with my view of prophecy and fulfilled prophecy and all of that stuff. Like, wow, obviously there was a prophecy about Judas that had to be fulfilled. I've had people pull out the prophecy that's being referenced. A couple different options that people could go to for that. And again, I think Jesus' statement here is just, this is, no, this is, this is what the prophets tell us. This is how it works. This is how the world is. This is, people betray you. People, I mean, this has been true going all the way back to David. This has been true going all the back to, this has always been true. This is what the prophets talked about. This is what's, this is the life that you've called us to. This is the mission you called us to. This is the objective. There's one even doomed to destruction, and this is because this is what the scriptures tell us about life, about what has to happen, about what we're called to do even when people betray us. And so this is what this is what scripture must be fulfilled to me. That's how my my perspective, my paradigm and worldview sees that and reads that. So the actual phrase in the Greek is son of destruction. Okay. Um, and the NET points out that it is uh, also used in Second Thessalonians two. Oh, very interesting. It's going to be the man of lawlessness, I would assume. And then, as far as scripture being fulfilled, um, they're they're saying it could be referenced to Psalm forty one, which was explicitly referenced previously. Uh, even my close friend, someone I trusted, one who shared my bread, has turned against me. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, but they also point out that 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 phrase, "son of destruction," in the Septuagint appears in Proverbs twenty four, where it says, "Fear the Lord and the King, my son, and do not join with rebellious officials, for those two will send destruction on them, and who knows what calamities they can bring." Wow, which <laughs> that, that has some teeth there. Wow. <laughs> Uh, yeah. So, I mean, fear the Lord as in the father and the King as in Jesus, my son, as in the disciples and do not join with rebellious officials as in, as in chief what priest. Judas is doing with yeah, the right, chief priest right, right, yeah. for those two will send destruction on them. And who knows what calamities they can bring. Oh. Wow. I mean, that, that seems like a pretty good yep. <laughs> reference. Uh, I mean, certainly we have the Psalm 41 at play from, you know, previous statements, sure. but I think, sure. I think it's good to add Proverbs 24 here in, in this instance. So, well, especially with such a unique phrase there that's used in the Septuagint. That's pretty interesting. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I am coming to you now, but I say these things while I am still in the world so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. All right. So it feels to me like he wants them to hear this because he's like, I'm saying this now so that they can have joy. And he could be saying that in reference to like, would you protect them and all that stuff? Cause I want them to experience joy. Or he could also be, you know, I I'm praying this now I'm leaving for now. I'm still here, but I won't be here for much longer. And I'm praying this so that they would understand what's going on in the world. They would have this sense of 
what's what's up not that we can necessarily apply our practices to uh what jesus was doing two thousand years ago but i feel like this is something that we do today in prayer in that we uh, pray for someone in their presence sure know, with absolutely. hands on them or absolutely. whatever and yeah. like we are talking to god but we're saying it also for their benefit and i absolutely I think that could certainly be a play here absolutely it's part of corporate prayer in general, yeah. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself that they too may be truly sanctified. All right. So Jesus seems to imply, I've equipped them. I've given them the things that they need. So he just got done kind of praying. The first utterance he has for their unity, I, I pray for unity, that they would be one as as we are one. And and I'm coming to you. I'm still here for now. I'm coming to you, God, but I'm, I'm praying that that they, you know, I'm praying this for their joy because I've given them my word and they have it. And that has set them apart from the world. And that process needs to continue. The world hates them, but you need to keep sanctifying them in truth. And my word is truth. So basically what he just said, I gave them the word. It set them apart. That needs to keep going. Don't let them bail on the mission. Don't let them bail on the objective. Make sure that this word that I've given them, word from you, God, continues to stir in them, continues to set them apart and protect them, keep them from running from it, stumbling from it. Let this be fanned into flame, Paul might say to Timothy later, but let this do its work to set them apart and be made different. I need them, Jesus says, to stay here. There's a mission, and I need, there's a strategy. I need them to stay here in the world. I need them to be in the world. They're not going to be of the world. They're not going to be like the world, but they have to be in the world because that's the world that you're redeeming. And this world and them, there's going to be some tension. There's going to be, they're not going to see everything the same way but they need to be here because this is the world that you're redeeming. And so we need them to have your word. We need them to be set apart from the truth that redeems the word, the world. And we need them to have this sense of unity together that gives them a testimony to the goodness of God and who he is. And it's interesting that he says, I sanctify myself. And the NET was kind of talking about uh, what that could potentially mean. And one of the things was that they... Uh, Jesus is saying, I'm going to dedicate myself to go to the cross so that the other guys don't have to, um, which, I mean, they kind of did later, but also I guess they have some work to do in the meantime, I guess is maybe what he's getting at. But we do see that in chapter 18, where the the soldiers and the chief priests and everybody comes to the, the garden and they say, okay, you know, and he's like, who are you looking for? And they're like, we're looking for Jesus. And then, you know, they do that a couple times. And then he's like, okay, if here I am, leave the rest of these guys alone. So maybe there's something to that. I don't know. Sure. That's no, interesting. It's a weird, it's a weird idea. Um, okay. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. Okay. So now his prayer shifted. He was praying for those immediate disciples whether it's the 12 or more or whatever, the disciples that are there in that day and age, in that context. But now he said, I don't just pray for them. I pray for everyone that will come after them that will believe in their message. That's, that's you and me, Brent. That's, that's many of our listeners. That's, 
It's a whole lot of people. Jesus prays now for us in a lot of senses. And all those that have come since this movement, between this movement and us throughout history, all those shoulders we stand on top of, Jesus prays for us. So go ahead. And I do think maybe this is uh, because earlier he said specifically, I pray for them. I am not praying for the world, but those you have given me for they are yours. And I, th- I feel like that kind of bolsters the idea that the disciples are there listening to this because uh, sure. obviously yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. God is going to know who he's praying for without having to clarify. But he says that in his prayer because he's like, hey, like you, you guys here, I'm praying. Just realize for sure that I'm speaking about you here. Yeah, sure. And then, and then later he comes back. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. That all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. Okay, so now Jesus prays the same prayer of unity for... So this wasn't just about the 12 that we're fighting about who is the greatest. There is something inherently connected to the mission of God in the world, the presence of his people in the world, in that age and all the ages to come, including ours... In Jesus' prayer that he's praying for, these last words that he's uttering before he goes to the cross, top of his mind, whatever, the, the strategy he's praying about, there is something connected to unity, to this oneness, to this fact that not only would those 12 find a oneness, but all those that come after them there would be a there is something important about that. Let's see what happens next. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Okay, so now we have this... Uh, he, do, he he said that same idea and for, almost repeated himself with this par, this parallelism. He talks about this this oneness... And it's connected to the idea that the world will know, the world will know who God is and who Jesus is, and that God sent Jesus. The world will know that. Twice, Jesus says, connects it to that idea, because they are one, because of their unity, that is the testimony that testifies to who Jesus is and what God's doing in the world. There is a direct connection, which is why Jesus is praying for it so directly so intentionally, so adamantly. This isn't a passing thought. This isn't a sight. This is one of the driving, if not the driving component. It is one of the driving components of the prayer that he's praying is that in the midst of all this, and I'm leaving and I'm leaving them behind, God, I pray that you would protect them and I pray that they would be one because in their oneness and in their unity, that is how the world is going to know. That is the greatest testimony. I, I mean, and feel free to argue with 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 me but this is the greatest testimony that we have to the world not our apologetics and our intellectual explanations and defenses of scripture not our amazing theology or slick gospel presentations the most effective efficacious tool we have in this whole mission of God is the way that we fellowship with and have relationships with one another, with people who are not like us, 
people who are radically different than us. It's one, Of course you would get together with people who all think the same thing as you. Of course, when you all follow the same things on Instagram, when you all agree to the same stuff, when you all have the same categories, when you're all wearing the same t-shirt, when you're all pursuing the same ideology, of course you agree with That's not what Jesus is praying for. Jesus is praying for a unity. Notice, not a uniformity. Those are two different things. Unity and uniformity are not the same thing. Uniformity is not unity. In fact, uniformity is the exact opposite of unity because uniformity makes everything the same. Unity means that there's a oneness in spite of the distinctions, a oneness in spite of the differences. And so there is this there is this, I lost my train of thought. I got so ramped, I got so amped up, Brent, I, f- I forgot what I was even saying. <laughs> well, I will point out, I, I like the parallel to the previous prayer for the disciples where he says, uh, they, they have obeyed your word. Uh, they know that everything you've given me comes from you. Uh, they accepted the words. Uh, they knew with certainty that I came from you and they believed that you sent me. And so he's, he's taking that and saying, you know, I pray that they'll go on and that the world will come to that same position because of their work. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. And, and this is still just, I mean, this is what we, this, this is what we need to find a new way of grasping in a new, fresh way for us today, because we, we don't do this. And when I talk about unity, I am so not talking about some stupid pseudo unity. Okay, here's here's my here's my here's where my train of thought is, Brent. We have a world where we're very clear on our we're very good at our identities and our distinctions. Yes? Do you, do you feel like that's an act? I know that there are people out there that have strong opinions, and in our world it's very easy if people want to let those opinions be known to know how I am like them or different than them. Yes? Sure, yeah. There are conservatives and there are progressives and there are Republicans and there are Democrats and there are there's this group of people and that hashtag cause and this social issue and that news story. And there there are a million ways that we can see all the ways that we are passionately different and we have passionate convictions that differ from one another. And there are two different ways to deal with that, um, that, um, that disruption, that dissonance, that disharmony. One, you can do like a pseudo unity, which means we just kind of ignore all those distinctions. We just kind of make it this shallow, glossy, like I, I just kind of, we, we never talk about politics. We never touch on those issues. We never, do any of those, like whatever. I mean, some people are probably listening here like, but that's what you do on the Bama podcast. You refuse to get into any of the good stuff. It's it's also about understanding like what level of fellowship, what level, what kind of space you're engaging. But on a fellowship level, we can take all those distinctions. We can just kind of ignore it, just kind of like act like it's not there, never talk about it, never address it. I don't think that's the unity at all that Jesus is is longing for. I don't think that at all is a testimony to who God is and that God sent Jesus into the world. You can also go the other direction. You can see those distinctions and those differences and go deeper into the human and in, into our human identity together. You can see those distinctions and you can choose to see a deeper version of their humanity, not go shallow and gloss over it and ignore it, but go deeper into who they are. You can find the Christness in them. 
You can take your enemy and you can find Jesus in them. You can find the image of Godness in them. You can take the person who completely disagrees with that conviction or fits in the opposing category than you. And in the name of Jesus, in Christ, you can go further into who they are to see their humanity, to see the things that they value, to see the things that they're afraid of and they're insecure of, to find common ground that in Christ, all of a sudden, in this thing that Jesus is doing, it 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 gets it gets transformed it's different it's changed and it doesn't get washed away i'm still i'm still the same person with the same convictions that person that disagrees with me is still the same person with their same convictions we're still distinct and yet because we've gone deeper into who we are we we can find a way to sit at the same eucharist table to break the same bread to drink the same juice and say yes me too in christ we share a bond of fellowship that doesn't happen on cable television. That doesn't happen on Facebook. That doesn't happen around the Thanksgiving dinner table with my family half the time. It doesn't happen. It just doesn't. That is the testimony to this thing. That is why Jesus is praying. For, you don't find that anywhere except where God is at work. God and, the, and, and Christ is the one thing that transcends, can transcend all of these distinctions, all of these differences. When people see it, they go, what in the world is that? And you say, Christ. That's what that is. And that's the testimony that Jesus is praying for. He is not praying for rightness. Like, which group has it more? Like, which is the purest group doctrinally? Which is the group that has it all figured out correctly? Which is, no, have real, true fellowship. Love one another in a way that the world, that would blow the world's mind. Because when the world sees that, and again, I'm not talking about pseudo-unity, and I'm not talking about just wishy-washy, like acceptance, tolerance, love for every... I'm, I'm talking about a deeper love that sees somebody's true, real identity, real passions, real convictions, but also goes deeper to see their real humanity. That that would that would blow our world today away. That would absolutely blow our world away. If we didn't, if we didn't settle for cheap unity or like this difference-laden hatred that we have for each other. If we, if we found a way to transcend selfishness and find unity, if we found a way to transcend cancel culture and find unity, whew, man, what a, what, a, what a powerful testimony to the world today that would still be. It's why Jesus prays for it. Amen and amen. Uh, we do have a few more verses, so if you'll allow me. I'll finish this I, I, would, I would love for you to finish. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. Amen. That's a it's a pretty good call. I feel like there's I feel like there's like three hours more deeper content to what we need to get our head around here in this prayer. But maybe we've scratched the surface and cracked the door open just a little bit. And yeah, I, I tell you, I listen to so many of our listeners send emails or talk about it on Slack, and they get this stuff and they see stuff that I haven't even seen. So I, I trust that some of the seeds we plant here. Uh, they're already seeing things and making connections and know how to embody this in ways that 
I'm not even able to articulate, but this is, this is a big deal. If we can figure this out in the world today, it's not about figuring out which team is right, but it's about figuring out that there's a team that transcends all this other stuff. Um, man, there's something there still today. I have one final question. Okay. Do you think in Greek, this chapter is as much of a tongue twister as it is in English? <laughs> That'd be a great question for some of our Greek <laughs> professor listeners. I don't know. I don't know. Part of me wants to say no. I'm sure it sounds much more beautiful and poetic, but I've also been told that much of the Greek of the New Testament is very rough and and not beautifully put together. So I don't know. I don't know. It's a great question. I don't know. Well, if you're going to make anything beautiful, this is a pretty good chapter to uh, make it a little fancy. Yep. Okay. That does it for this episode. Hopefully uh, people will go to their discussion groups or at least uh, to one other person or the Baymoss Slack or something and and uh, wrestle through some of these ideas together with others. It's kind of the idea here, the unity. Absolutely. That'd be a great uh, great next step to make this applicable. Well, if you want to get a hold of Marty, you can find him on Twitter at Marty Solomon. I'm at EIBCB. And you can find more details about the show at com. So thanks for joining us on the Bama podcast. We'll talk to you again soon.